Hi everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. Let's play a word association game. When I say art, what comes to mind? Surely things like brushstroke or the Mona Lisa, color wheels, or maybe the statue of David, stylistic mediums like pop art or impressionism, or truly any number of things might enter your thoughts with that one three-letter word that carries so many different meanings. One word that might not immediately, if ever, come to mind, though, when thinking about art is crime. However, art and crime blend together just as easily as the colors in a watercolor painting do. The art world is undeniably almost inextricably linked to crime, and history has shown how true that connection is. Art crimes have been around since before the birth of Christ. There was the sacking of Jerusalem in 586 BC, led by Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar II, wherein the Temple of Solomon was pillaged and plundered, along with the historically significant artifacts that lay within it. Colonialism, of course, has proven itself to be a form of art theft, as dozens of cultures found their rich histories and masterpieces stolen, or worse, destroyed. More contemporaneously, the old masters were themselves often wrapped up in a crime or two. Michelangelo gained his first prominent sale to a Vatican cardinal by passing off a sculpture that he made as a recent archaeological discovery. And, not to mention, he was the absolute PR nightmare that he served to be for the Vatican throughout his career, and the controversial commotions that he seemed to love to stir up between the realms of art and religion. There were the scandals that dogged Rembrandt's footsteps, like when he tried to have a lover institutionalized against her will, and these scandals followed him to his penniless death. There have been whispers that Vincent van Gogh did not die by suicide, but at the hand of another. Attempted murder, too, arrived on the art scene in 1968, with the near-fatal shooting of Andy Warhol at the hands of a disturbed fan in his factory studio. And if you've watched the recent Netflix documentary series, Murder Among the Mormons, one might argue the case that, given the depth of the deception and the detail paid to the pieces, that forger Mark Hoffman made his forgeries into a sort of art form. Art dealers and forgers rub elbows regularly, if not while playing both roles at the same time. But perhaps the greatest of crimes that has ever faced the art world is one that remains shrouded in mystery and riddled with questions. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist is a crime truly like no other. It's a tale of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, that is. A serendipitous middle-of-the-night robbery on St. Patrick's Day and ties to the bloody gang wars that were fought in the streets of the 1980s and 1990s Boston. But when you strip down the history of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, what is at its heart is art and crime, as well as one simple but mystifying question, one that has haunted millions of people over three decades. How does all of that art simply vanish? Let's get ready to get dark as hell. The story of this museum heist is one that begins before the museum itself was even constructed. Because to understand the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, one has to first understand the woman behind the museum, Isabella Stewart Gardner herself. Isabella Stewart was born in New York City on April 14, 1840, the daughter of a wealthy linen merchant. She grew up in Manhattan and lived the picturesque life of a daughter of a wealthy family. Until she was 15, she attended a private academy for girls where she was educated in subjects such as art, music, and dance, 
and she learned both French and Italian. As was the custom at the time, at 16, Isabella was sent off to Paris, where she was finished at a finishing school for American girls of wealthy families. It was here, during her first European tour, where she began to cultivate what would be a lifelong love affair with art. In 1857, during a trip to Milan, she visited the Museo Poldi Pezzoli, where curator Gian Giacomon Poldi Pezzoli's collection of Renaissance art was, quote, arranged in rooms designed to recall historical eras. In a later letter to a friend where she recounted the experience, Isabella was so inspired by the unique curation that she claimed, quote, if she were ever to inherit some money, she would have a similar house for people to visit and enjoy. The next year, in 1858, Isabella returned to New York City, and she was promptly invited to Boston by one of her former classmates from her Parisian finishing school, a Miss Julia Gardner. Upon arriving, Isabella met Julia's brother, John, who went by Jack, John Lowell Gardner, who was considered one of Boston's most eligible bachelors of the day. Within two years, Jack and Isabella were married at Grace Church in Manhattan on April 10th, 1860, but they made their home in Boston's Back Bay neighborhood, where they resided in a mansion at 152 Beacon Street, a mansion that was a wedding gift from Isabella's father. Through her marriage to Jack, Isabella became connected to not only the prominent Gardner family, but two other of the wealthiest and most respectable names of New England at the time, the Lowell family and the Peabody family. Jack's maternal grandfather was Joseph Peabody, a Salem shipping magnate who had his, found his fortune through importing, and he was one of the wealthiest men in the United States at the time of his death in 1844. His paternal grandfather, Samuel Pickering, was a descendant of Timothy Pickering, a notable Massachusetts politician and revolutionary figure who served as the third Secretary of State under both George Washington and John Adams. All of this to say, when Isabella married Jack Gardner, she went from being wealthy in her own family's name to being wealthy, wealthy. Despite her status, Isabella was a warm, energetic, bold woman who cared little for appealing to societal sensibilities. As recounted in the book, The Gardener Heist, it was said about Isabella that, quote, she loved to talk and dance and sometimes hijack horse-drawn sleighs and careen them around Boston Common. It's with that knowledge of her spirit in mind that after suffering the 1865 death of their two-year-old son due to pneumonia, as well as the deaths of her dear friend and sister-in-law all in one fell swoop, Isabella lost the shine to her personality. She suffered a miscarriage in 1866, and following that loss, she was told that she would never be able to have children of her own. Isabella fell into a deep depression and almost completely removed herself from the society that she so loved to entertain. After consulting with doctors, Jack approached his wife with the plan of leaving Boston behind for a while and traveling throughout Europe. In 1867, the two set sail for the continent and traveled for just over a year. Throughout this time, they saw the sights throughout the Scandinavian countries, they visited Russia, but it was in Paris that they made their temporary home for the most part. And it was during this year abroad that Isabella found not only herself again, but a new love of life and a new particular interest that would become, quote, a turning point in her life. When the gardeners returned to Boston, it was as if Isabella of old had never left. The gossip columns and society pages adored her for her, quote, stylish tastes and unconventional behavior. She garnered several nicknames for herself over the years, including Belle, Donna Isabella, Isabella of Boston, and Mrs. Jack. In the Gardner Heist book, contemporary writings claim that, quote, she enjoyed being brash and extravagant. She wore pearl necklaces thick as sailing ropes and a diamond tiara called the Raja. She threw herself into anything that smacked of adventure. Another Boston reporter wrote that, quote, 
Mrs. Jack Gardner is one of the seven wonders of Boston. There is nobody like her in any city in this country. She is a millionaire bohemian. She is a leader of the smart set, but she often leads where none dare follow. She imitates nobody. Everything that she does is novel and original. Perhaps it's with all of that in mind that it comes as no surprise that there was another nickname Isabella was christened with by Boston society, the Queen of the Back Bay. Though Isabella loved to explore the ways in which she could shock and amuse the society pages of Boston, travel had clearly become one of her and Jack's foremost interests. Beginning in the late 1880s, they traveled frequently across America, Europe, and Asia to discover foreign cultures and expand their knowledge of art around the world. Jack and Isabella would eventually take more than a dozen trips abroad over the years, and it kept them out of the country for a total of 10 years when put together. And it was in 1892, during one of those trips, that Isabella bought the piece of art that would begin a lifelong love, interest, and perhaps near obsession. It was in 1891 that Isabella began to focus on something that had long held her interest, collecting art. When her father passed in 1891, Isabella was left $1.75 million and decided that she would use some of that money to begin collecting art. And she began dabbling in the European fine art scene almost immediately afterward. At the time, art, as most things in the world, was considered a man's realm. So Isabella enlisted the help of Bernard Berenson, who would later become her personal art dealer and chief art advisor, and who would help her to acquire many masterpieces of her collection. But that all came later, because what came first in 1892 was Vermeer's The Concert. The story of how Isabella came into possession of the concert is one that completely fits the idea of Isabella's penchant for a little tomfoolery, a little finagling, and a lot of charm. During a trip to Paris in 1892, she and Baronson stopped into an auction house and discovered the Vermeer piece among all of the other treasures and knickknacks. It said that Isabella immediately knew that she had to have the painting and that she basically dragged Berenson out of the auction house after they saw it so as not to draw the attention of other people in the auction house who might realize what a find that she had discovered and then try to acquire it for themselves. Just a day or two later, the piece went up for auction and Isabella had devised a plan. A woman couldn't very well be seen bidding on art herself and Isabella certainly didn't want to be seen bidding on the Vermeer, which would undoubtedly gain the attention of other, more ruthless collectors. So, instead, she had Berenson do the bidding for her, while she sat in the back of the room, a handkerchief covering her face for the whole time. Her signed Berenson to keep the bidding going against her two main competitors that day. The National Gallery of London and the Louvre itself. Eventually, the National Gallery and the Louvre bowed out, and the Vermeer was Isabella's for a sum roughly worth $5,000, which today clocks in at around $150,000. Allegedly, the famed British and French museums were horrified when they realized that not only had a beginner in art collecting outbid them, but that it was an American woman at that. According to Christina Nielsen, one of the curators at the Gardner Museum, Following the savvy scheme by Isabella, quote, suddenly, Isabella Stewart Gardner was a well-known name in the art world overnight. Following the purchase of the concert, the Gardners began to collect in earnest, both of them, and, quote, rapidly built a world-class collection primarily of paintings and statues, but also tapestries, photographs, silver, ceramics, and manuscripts, and architectural elements such as doors, stained glass, and mantelpieces. Together, the couple's collection grew and became home to some of Europe's most influential artists and some of the most important pieces of art created on the continent. Just a few of those pieces included Botticelli's Madonna and Child with an Angel, 
Raphael's The Colonna Altarpiece, and pieces by Diego Velasquez. If Jack wasn't available, Isabella would typically turn to the other male colleagues who advise and assist the gardeners in their continuous hunt for the next art treasure. Bernard Berenson, in particular, was crucial to securing some of the most famous pieces in the Gardner collection. He advised Isabella, Isabella in the purchase of Rembrandt's self-portrait, age 23, and helped secure Titian's The Rape of Europa for a record-breaking sum of 20,000 pounds. Translated to today's prices, the piece would have sold for $575,000. And Isabella was known to still have her fun when it came to collecting, beyond just scheming against some of the most prominent museums of the time. She was known to have her dealers smuggle newly purchased art out of Europe to avoid paying what would have been hefty import taxes. The artworks would be hidden in false bottoms of trunks, disguised in various wrappings, or otherwise made to appear not to be old master artworks worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. She was said to have loved the drama and the hijinks associated with her paid-for, yet still smuggled goods. As their art collection grew, by contrast, the Beacon Street mansion in Back Bay seemed to shrink. The couple had already had renovations done to the house to enlarge it, but in 1896, Isabella and Jack realized that it would be foolish to do yet another round of renovations when their collection of art, which included Botticelli's, more Vermeer's, and additional Rembrandt's by this time, was still growing at a lightning speed rate. So they did what any dizzyingly wealthy couple would do before the turn of the century. They decided to buy land and build a new structure that they would turn into a museum for their artwork. And of course, they would include a floor of apartments for themselves within it. This, Jack felt, would be, quote, more sensible. Jack, however, wouldn't live to see the museum break ground. He died of a sudden stroke in 1898, and with his passing, Isabella vowed to see their dream of a museum for their collective treasures made into a reality. In early 1899, she purchased the land for the museum, quote, in the marshy Fenway area of Boston and hired architect Willard T. Sears to build a museum modeled on the Renaissance palaces of Venice. Building began in June of that same year. There was a reason that Isabella drew inspiration from the palaces of Venice. Simply put, Venice was her most favorite travel destination out of all of the other vast and beautiful places that the gardeners had traveled to throughout the world. Whenever they traveled to Venice, they were known to call the Palazzo Barbaro their home. Fitting because the, bar the Palazzo was known to be, quote, a major artistic center for a circle of American and English expatriates in Venice. And it became the major source of inspiration behind the museum that Isabella was dreaming up. In fact, in 1897, just before Jack died, the couple traveled, quote, through Venice, Florence, and Rome to gather architectural fragments for their eventual gallery. They purchased columns, windows, and doorways to adorn every floor as well as reliefs, balustrades, capitals, and statuary from the Roman, Byzantine, Gothic, and Renaissance periods. With how deeply Isabella cared about the museum, it shouldn't come as a shock that she also wanted to be deeply involved in the design and construction of the museum as well. Willard T. Sears, the architect leading the project, later commented that he wasn't so much the chief architect as much as he was, quote, merely the structural engineer making Isabella's design possible. In her typical devil-may-care fashion, Isabella became a daily presence on the marshy grounds where the museum would one day stand, and she loved being in the grit and the dirt of the project with her, quote, hands-on approach. In one letter that the museum's website shares, Isabella wrote to a friend that, quote, I still go daily, dinner pail in hand, to my Fenway Court work. Photographs from the time captured images of Isabella standing on a ladder in the middle of what would become the famous courtyard 
demonstrating to the plasterers the effect that she sought in the distinctive mottled pink stucco walls. Another anecdote from the construction period claims that, quote, when ceiling beams arrived for the Gothic room and were too smooth for her liking, she took an ax in hand and hacked away at them to achieve her desired result. The museum would eventually come to have four floors, three designated as private galleries, and the uppermost fourth floor would be the home to the private living quarters that Isabella eventually moved into. The building itself was a work of art housing the other works of art that were so treasured by the gardeners. The structure of the museum was designed in such a way that it completely surrounded a glass-covered garden courtyard that's constructed from Roman, Byzantine, Romanesque, Gothic, and Renaissance elements in stone columns that is as much part of the art as the pieces housed inside the museum. By the end of 1901, the construction of the museum had finished, and now it was time to deal with the art that would live within its walls. Let me paint a picture of what the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum looks like. The building completely surrounds a glass-covered garden courtyard, which is the first of its kind in America. Isabella intended the second and third floors to be galleries. Construction, like I said, began in 1899 and was completed by the latter half of 1901. In 1902, Isabella began the year-long process of personally and meticulously installing the entirety of the art that she had collected in a manner that reflected both her personal style and aesthetic. The museum's website describes the process in that, quote, the eclectic gallery installations, paintings, sculptures, textiles, and furniture from different periods and cultures combine to create a rich, complex, and unique narrative. Isabella spent a year carefully installing the collection, and within the rooms of the museum, Isabella thoughtfully displayed, quote, more than 7,500 paintings, sculptures, furniture, textiles, silver, ceramics, 1,500 rare books, and 7,000 archival objects from ancient Rome, medieval Europe, Renaissance Italy, Asia, the Islamic world, and 19th century France and America. Among the artists represented in the galleries are Titian, Rembrandt, Michelangelo, Raphael, Botticelli, Manet, Degas, Whistler, and Sargent. Within the museum, Isabella also established several firsts for the country. Inside the yellow room is where the first Matisse painting to enter an American collection lives, and she also displayed the only Cellini bronze piece in the country. One of her more unique pieces on display was a lock of Robert Browning's hair. On New Year's Day 1903, Isabella opened the museum at a private celebration that included the Boston Symphony Orchestra, a menu of champagne and donuts, and an evening of music, art, and culture. One month later, the museum opened to the public at large. According to the museum's website, quote, over the next 20 years, Isabella Stewart Gardner filled her museum with visual and performing artists. She organized concerts, lectures, and exhibitions, and encouraged artists to make themselves home in the museum. John Singer Sargent painted in the Gothic room, Ruth St. Dennis performed her famous piece, The Cobra in the Cloisters, and Australian opera star Nellie Melba performed from the balcony of the Dutch room. Isabella would also diligently oversee the continual curation and installations of the artworks that she continued to acquire throughout the rest of her life. In 1919, Isabella suffered a stroke in what would become a series of strokes. Despite the setback, she still received guests, artists and residents, and new pieces of art to her museum home for the next five years. On July 17, 1924, Isabella died, but her museum lived on. In her will, she declared that she was leaving the museum as a Bostonian landmark with the intention that it serve, quote, for the education and enjoyment of the public forever. She left a 3.6 million endowment, which would total around 15 million today, in order to continue the operation of the museum. And she also left a series of stipulations in her will about the continued treatment of the museum. 
Given the careful thought and curation that she put into the displays of her collection, the will demanded that nothing in the gallery should be, quote, significantly changed or added, and that none of the items from the collection could be sold. Any additions to the collection have since been painstakingly vetted by the current, current curators and consulted on with the museum's legal counsel. Isabella demanded that if any significant changes were made that did not keep to her vision of the museum, the trustees would be honor bound to sell the collection and donate all of the profits to Harvard University. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum stands for a lot of things, but as her biographer Douglas Shantucci said in the Gardner Heist book, quote, it's the only institution designed and named after a woman. It's a palace dedicated to the idea of beauty and really the country's first great art collection. For a museum like the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, it's hard to truly pinpoint what the entire value of the museum might be worth. But you can imagine its overall worth when you learn that 13 pieces, and not even the most famous or most significant ones at that, 13 pieces were worth 500 million. And that's 13 pieces out of almost 16,000. And for those in the know, they knew. More than 60 years after Isabella died, the Gardner Museum was ripe for the taking. For over 60 years, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum stood as a Bostonian beacon of beauty, taste, and those intangible emotions that art can stir within people. But behind the beauty were very real and less beautiful issues facing the museum. Chief among them was the issue of security. Security had been something that Isabella herself had been incredibly concerned with when she was alive and when the museum had first opened. Though she wanted the museum to be open to the public, she still charged $1 as an entrance fee to quote, keep out the curious, which is worth about a $30 fee in today's time. She demanded that the security guards who were hired be, quote, young men whose business is ushering, though she herself could be found walking through the museum and eyeing guests during visiting hours. One anecdote relayed in the Gardner Heist book shared that when Isabella once shared the time Isabella once saw an elderly woman, quote, poking at some of her treasures, and she cursed her, bellowing, Jesus Christ, madam, this is no menagerie. Her biographer, Douglas Shantucci, claims that Isabella was, quote, dreadfully afraid of a robbery, because really, she valued the contents of her museum above all else, even herself. Knowing this, why then was security so lackluster for such a renowned art collection? In part, it had to do with the changes or lack thereof, that took place following Isabella's death. Soon after she died, the board of trustees for the museum became stocked with conservative patrician types of men, men with last names that reeked of old money and blue blood, men who held old school beliefs and ran with them, still tightly clenched in their fists. For years, these trustees claimed that they were upholding Isabella's wishes by refusing to modernize with electricity. It wouldn't be until the mid-1930s that, finally, candlelight as the main form of lighting was done away with, and electricity was installed in the museum. Of course, the underlying issue that worsened existing problems like the lack of security was due to insufficient funds. Many of the trustees over the years had held to the belief that Isabella's endowment from her will would simply exist in perpetuity to support the museum because technically that's what an endowment is supposed to do. But as the times changed, so too did the circumstances of those times. Previous grants, subsidies, and government awards as means of financial support had been done away with. The fundraising program at the museum was all but non-existent in the 1980s. And in 1984, the museum only received 11 major gifts that totaled just under 300,000. In comparison, by 1988, 
The endowment was yielding 1.3 million, while the operating costs ran up to 2.8 million, and the museum had a deficit of more than $140,000. Simply put, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum was in the red, which of course meant that things like security and carefully maneuvering around Isabella's strict instructions, advising against major renovations, were just left to the sideline. This included things like simple building maintenance, which a former director of the Met in New York took notice of during a visit. Quote, the skylight is leaking in the court. The walls are stained. The lighting is atrocious. Some works of art are sitting in direct sunlight. There's no air conditioning. Technological advances like climate control systems were the last thing on anyone's mind when the museum could barely afford a roster of security guards. One would have hoped that, even in the midst of the financial strains, something as simple as a fully staffed and trained security guard team would have ranked high on the list of necessities for the museum, but that wasn't the case. According to the Gardner Heist, its author, Ulrich Bozer, reported that, quote, a full roster of guards can eat up half of a museum's operating budget. This theory actually plays out in reality when you examine the Smithsonian as an example. At the time, the Smithsonian was shelling out $70 million a year for a security team that numbered 500. The Gardner, though, didn't have that type of money or even the need for such a team so large. Instead, as one former guard at the time of the theft, Jim Kern said, life as a security guard at the Gardner wasn't all that hard to secure or that difficult a duty to perform. Quote, the museum didn't ask for much. They wanted someone who was not an idiot, who would be friendly and do what was asked of them, which was to go to work on time and take the job seriously. It was an easy gig, as evidenced by the mostly college or grad students who signed on for the job. There wasn't much by way of a training session, and they were only being paid $6.85 an hour, which was $2 above minimum wage at the time. Lyle Grindle, when he was hired as the director of security in 1982, he fought to increase the salary for the security guards so that they could hire more experienced individuals, but he was shot down. The trustees consistently claimed that they simply didn't have the money to offer a more attractive salary for security guards, even if it meant that they would be getting better protection. Grindle later acknowledged the rock and hard place that he was in when it came to hiring guards. Well, he wanted a more professional roster of guards, quote, to get someone to walk around a spooky building all night was tough. Most of the 20-somethings serving as guards also didn't adhere too strictly to the policies outlined for them, especially those who worked during the third shift. Kern said that it was common practice to have friends that swung by in the nighttime hours come inside the museum, and the pizza guy was a regular amongst the second and third shift guys. Drinking exploits, visits from girlfriends and buddies leaving the bars, and sessions of smoking weren't uncommon for the late night guards. As Kern put it, quote, there was nothing in the job description that kept you from doing your job high. Even with a string of burglaries and thefts in Boston's art world throughout the 70s and 80s, the Gardner trustees couldn't find it in their troffers to expend more resources to better secure the treasures that Isabella had spent the majority of her life curating. Hell, the Gardner Museum had been part of those burglaries when it was robbed in 1970. A man visiting the museum created a diversion by smashing a bag of light bulbs against the floor of the Dutch room. And in the ensuing chaos, he made off with a tiny self-portrait of Rembrandt. The perpetrator was never caught for his crime, but the portrait was eventually recovered and returned. History seemed as if it might repeat itself in 1982, when word of a plot to burglarize the gardener again trickled up from the underworld. The rumor claimed that a mob associate had begun planning to steal from the museum and allegedly wanted to kickstart the theft by setting off a grenade in Isabella's beautifully curated courtyard that, like the bag of light bulbs, 
would send visitors and employees into a frenzy, allowing for art pieces to be swiped. This mob associate, however, was arrested on unrelated charges before the plan could come to fruition. It wasn't until that 1982 plot, though, that the board finally allowed some security changes to be made. It seemed that this rumored attack on the museum had finally spooked the trustees enough to loosen their grip on the endowment money bag. This, of course, was the same year that Lyle Grindel was hired as the new security director. And with his leadership, he, quote, brought the institution's defenses up to basic industry standards. These changes included installing closed circuit cameras at the entrances, installing motion detectors in each gallery, and he expanded the security team from 25 bodies to 40, even if he couldn't offer them a higher salary while doing so. Even with these simple but necessary changes, there were still others that security consultants noted weren't made, and other aspects were simply left defenseless. The guard desk, for instance, wasn't enclosed and had no protective barrier. The side entrances weren't given the same protections as the main doors. The phone lines weren't secure. And in terms of last resort, and only resort in the case of the gardener, there was only one simple panic button located behind the guard desk that connected the museum to the local police in case of emergency and the need for outside assistance. Some trustees had long dug in their heels about such advancements because of Isabella's strict instructions to keep the museum as she had left it. But knowing what we do about her fear of theft and her desire to protect her treasures, I think she would have been just fine with taking all the precautions that she could have in the name of protecting the museum. And I think she would have been fine in removing those trustees, which is eventually what happened in the 1980s. It wasn't until they revamped the board with people who had business sense, brought in a new director, and made decisive changes like creating, quote, a detailed renovation plan, a massive membership drive, cut programs, and requested a full security review. It seems finally things started to be going in the right direction. Still, though, even despite the 1982 plot, no one thought seriously about the potential for a robbery. As Jim Kern, the former security guard, put it, quote, no one ever thought that it would happen. I mean, no one. As always, those are famous last words. Because then, March 18th, 1990 occurred. It was only 30 minutes into March 18th, 1990, the day after St. Patrick's Day in a city that loves its St. Patrick's Day celebrations, that a gray hatchback car sat idling on an inconspicuous street called Palace Road. Two men were seated inside the car, and it was a group of tipsy high school seniors who first spotted them as they stumbled down the street from a dorm party. In Bozer's book, The Gardner Heist, he uncovered an eyewitness that he assigned the pseudonym Jerry Stratberg, who gave a very detailed description of the two men in the car. One was, quote, stocky and broad-shouldered, with round cheeks and squinty James Dean eyes. He allegedly had a mustache as well. Quote, the other man was shorter, standing just under five foot ten and wore a pair of square gold-framed glasses. Both were, quote, dressed as police officers in dark blue uniforms, eight-point service caps, and nylon knee-length coats. Complete, these uniforms, with police patches and lapels with standard insignias on them. It was when Strapper grabbed one of his female friends and threw her on his back, piggyback style, that he noticed the men, because this friend quickly warned him to watch out for the cops that were idling across the street on Palace Road. Given that they were underage high school students who were celebrating St. Patrick's Day with alcohol that they couldn't legally buy or technically consume, the two became nervous. Strapberg told Bozer in the Gardner Heist that he thought it was a little odd that the cops were there, but then reconciled the idea by thinking perhaps the cops were just stationed there to keep an eye out for trouble, since a series of muggings had taken place earlier in the year, with a pregnant woman getting shot and killed back in October. In any regard, 
The high schoolers were spooked, quickly threw on a sober act, and all of them hurried into a car that sped off away from Palace Road and any trouble that they thought they might have gotten into had they been stopped by the two officers. At 1 a.m., the two men got out of the gray car, approached the side entrance of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, and activated the intercom buzzer. The security guard at the desk at that moment was a man named Rick Abbott. He answered, and one of the men outside said, quote, Police, let us in. We heard about a disturbance in the courtyard. A word now about Rick Abbott. At the time, he was a student at Berkeley who was better suited for gigs at a local bar than serving as a security guard at one of the most famous art institutions in the world. He was joined that night by another guard, Randy Heston, a grad student who was off doing his own rounds at the time. According to museum policy, it was protocol that, quote, one guard patrolled the galleries with a flashlight and walkie-talkie while the other sat at the security desk, which is what the two were doing at the time. That night's shift had already been strange, stranger than most when it came to the unsettling atmosphere of the third shift stint. At 12.30, while Abbott was doing his patrol, a fire alarm had inexplicably gone off in the conservation lab on the fourth floor, but he couldn't locate any such fire. 10 minutes later, an alarm went off in the carriage house outside, but when he ran to investigate, again, there weren't any signs of flames or smoke to be seen. Later, as he was returning to the desk, Abbott went into the main security office after this and saw that the fire alarm control panel was indicating that there was smoke in several rooms, yet he himself had witnessed no smoke. In accordance with his own blasé attitude, he assumed that the system was malfunctioning and shut it down. He went to finish his patrol, but before he arrived back at the desk to switch duties with Randy Heston, he, quote, made a quick stop at the side entrance of the museum, briefly opened the side door, and shut it again. It was as Heston was doing his rounds that the two police officers arrived at the side entrance. Given that these police officers seemed to know about the strange alarms going off earlier, Abbott paused momentarily, but eventually disregarded one of the few explicit orders of his job, and he let the men inside. At 1.24 a.m., the officers entered, and they made their way to the guard desk. Abbott told them that there was another guard on duty, Randy Heston, and they asked Abbott to call him over his walkie-talkie to join them. That night, it should be noted, was actually Heston's first time ever being on the third shift, as he had agreed to cover for another guard who had called him desperately earlier in the afternoon, claiming that he had, quote, fallen ill and needed coverage. As they waited for Heston to come down to the desk, Abbott was surprised when the shorter officer, the one with the glasses, remarked to Abbott that he, quote, looked familiar and that they might have a default warrant out on him. He told Abbott, come out here and show us some identification. Abbott was immediately nervous, as most would be. He had been known to smoke marijuana before coming to his graveyard shift at the museum after some shows at the local bars, and he had thrown a little Christmas party three months earlier with another security guard where they snuck in two friends during their shift and drank bottles of wine in the Dutch room, something that was explicitly, explicitly against the rules for any employee, much less a security guard. By listening to the officers for a second time, Abbott left his station and the only place where he could have accessed and used the panic button, the only security measure that reached the world outside of the museum. As it was, when Abbott stepped away from the guard desk, one of the men immediately threw him against the nearby wall and secured a pair of handcuffs around his wrist. From all of his time watching cop shows, Abbott just as quickly realized that something was off with the cops and severely wrong with the situation since neither of the alleged police officers had frisked him before locking the handcuffs. When Heston arrived, the cops treated him in the same manner, threw him against the wall and placed him into handcuffs. It was then that the other shoe dropped as one of the men spoke, quote, 
this is a robbery. Don't give us any problems and you won't get hurt. Just before the officers turned thieves began duct taping Heston and Abbott's eyes and mouths shut, Heston reportedly made the comment, quote, don't worry, they don't pay me enough to get hurt. After taping up the entire heads of Abbott and Heston with duct tape, covering their eyes and mouths completely, at 1.33 a.m., the two thieves led the men down into the basement, but they did so without needing to ask either of the guards for directions to the basement or for any information about its layout. Once they arrived in the basement, the two guards were separated. Heston was handcuffed to a workbench, and Abbott was bound to a steam pipe in a separate room away from Heston that was down a long hallway. Before the thieves went back up the stairs, one of the men took Abbott's and Heston's wallets and gave them a warning. Quote, we know where you live. Do as I say, and no harm will come to you. Don't tell them anything. And in about a year, you will get a reward. It only took the two intruders 11 minutes to subdue the guards. These two young 20-somethings were the last line of defense for the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And now, the museum was at the mercy of whoever these masquerading police officers were and were working for. The next movement that the thieves made was registered at 1.48 a.m., 13 minutes later when they entered the famous Dutch room. They may have been caught off guard when they approached the largest of the Rembrandt paintings housed in there because a motion detector alarm went off when they got too close to the painting. It was a security measure that was used to keep guests back an appropriate length from the art itself. Once they realized what the alarm was, one of the thieves simply kicked it into silence, knowing that no one was coming and they began the work that they came to do. The first victim of the siege against Isabel Stewart Gardner's collection was the inimitable painting by Rembrandt, his Storm on the Sea of Galilee. It was one of his earliest works and the only work of his that was a seascape. Inside the work picturing the events of the biblical tale, Rembrandt had allegedly painted himself as one of the disciples, and the painting has been, quote, hailed as one of the best examples of chiaroscuro, the dramatic contrasting of light and shadow ever created. Next, the two approach Rembrandt's A Lady and Gentleman in Black. Following that, the third Rembrandt that they removed was a large self-portrait oil painting, but they eventually left it leaning against a cabinet nearby. As it was painted on wood, investigators have since theorized that the thieves may have left it behind as it was too cumbersome to travel with. The final Rembrandt piece the thieves stole was a small, stamp-sized self-portrait etching. It had been installed just above the larger self-portrait on wood, so maybe they thought it was a consolation prize. The next painting from the Dutch room to be taken was Vermeer's The Concert. This piece was only one of 36 surviving works out of a portfolio that maybe numbered 60 pieces, making essentially every Vermeer original a true rarity. It's been estimated by some dealers that the painting could be worth as much as 300 million, put in even more mind-boggling terms. According to Bozer in the Gardner Heist, quote, each square inch of the canvas might be worth more than a quarter of a million dollars. Before they moved on from the room, the thieves also ripped from the walls of the Dutch room, Govert Flink's landscape with an obelisk, and they added a bronze Chinese goo, a 12 foot tall goblet that dated back to 1200 BC in the Shang dynasty to their pile. The goo was one of the oldest pieces in the collection, though it was only worth several thousand dollars. It's important to discuss how exactly these thieves removed the paintings in the Dutch room and beyond, because in a word, it was violent. They handled the art roughly. They would haul the works off of the walls and smash the paintings out of their glass frames by throwing them against the marble floors, shattering the glass without having to do any of the real work themselves. They then used a knife to cut and slash the painting in question out of its remaining stretcher 
freeing it entirely. In the wake of all this, shreds of canvas, flakes from the centuries-old paint, splinters, and shards of glass remained. At 1.51 a.m., the motion detector sensors that had been installed recorded new movements as the thieves left their destruction in the Dutch room, walked across the courtyard, and allowed themselves into the hallway known as the Short Gallery, where, tragically, ironically, a portrait of Isabella herself hung, watching as thieves plundered the treasures of the museum that she had so lovingly created. In the short gallery, the thieves continued their rampage with almost wild, nonsensical abandon. While one grabbed five sketches by Degas that dated throughout the 1880s, the other began, as far as investigators could later tell, attempting to steal a battle flag from Napoleon's Imperial Guard. The flag was protected by glass casing, and to get to the flag, each metal screw of the casing had to be undone. The thief only got partway through before seeming to give up. Instead, he simply ripped the eagle finial from the top of the flag instead, when unscrewing the metal screws proved to be too tiresome. The thieves returned to the ground floor after this, and they entered into the blue room, where their final act of vandalism occurred when they removed Edouard Manet's painting, Chez Tortani, from its frame. This work of Manet's was considered a masterpiece of early modernism. And curiously, when they exited the Blue Room, they brought the frame with them. It seemed the burglary aspect of the attack was finished. The two men went back into the basement to check on Abbott and Heston, who were wondering if they were going to be killed or if the museum would be set ablaze. Instead, they were surprised when the thieves seemed almost polite when they approached the guards again. The two later recounted that they were asked by the thieves, quote, are you comfortable? Handcuffs too tight? Bound and gagged by the duct tape, there wasn't much that Abbott and Heston could do, and the thieves returned to the ground floor shortly after and into the security director's office. The two thieves started to erase any trace of their presence from that night at the museum. They removed the video recordings of their entrance and grabbed the data printouts from the motion detector equipment, no doubt thinking themselves clever. However, though the videos were lost, the motion detector equipment would simultaneously store its recordings on the system's hard drive. So though the thieves took the printouts, the records still remained. As they left the security director's office, they left behind one sign of their presence though, the empty frame of Manet's painting, a sign of their prisons and a sign of their derision. At 2.41 a.m., the motion detector recorded the opening of the side door once and then twice. It's believed that the thieves had to make two trips to get all of their stolen artifacts out of the museum and into the gray hatchback that they had left on Palace Road. It wasn't until 2.45 a.m. that the door was recorded closing for the last time. In 81 minutes, two men were able to steal 13 works of art worth over 500 million and seemingly single-handedly pulled off the largest property robbery in history at the time. It's here, my friends, where I'm going to leave you with our tale of the heist. Next week, we have a lot to cover, which is why I'm breaking this up into two parts. We'll be covering the discovery of the theft, the initial investigation, the long years of searching, and the longer list of theories about who stole the art, where it went, and where it still might be today. But before we go, I won't leave you without some hashtag questions to consider while we wait for the second half of our story. Hashtag question number one. What is the estimated worth of the entire collection at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum? Who knew that number or an estimated figure of value for even some of the art housed in the museum? Why didn't the trustees place more importance on getting better security even before the 1982 plot was revealed and other museums and galleries had been the victims of burglaries? Even in keeping with Isabella's will, updating the museum for the sake of protecting the art, 
both in terms of security and protecting the art itself, should have been a no-brainer. Why wasn't more done to keep the art protected before something bad happened? We know now that the museum was able to find the funds to update security after the 1982 plot came to light. So it begs the question, why did they wait until the 11th hour when it was already too late to make the necessary updates to security? Was the 1982 plot a rumor or a legitimate actionable plan? An actionable plan that came to fruition eight years later. Were the 12.30 fire alarm and the 12.40 alarm from the carriage house at all related to the events that took place on March 18th, or were they just a fluke? Did the two thieves orchestrate the alarms going off in order to gain the guard's confidence when they told them that they were police officers who had been sent because of a disturbance? Why did guard Rick Abbott step outside of the side entrance before going back to the security desk while he was doing his patrol? It later came out that he didn't tell Heston that he was doing that that night and has never really explained why he did it. So what exactly was he doing? Was it coincidence or planned for Randy Heston to be standing in for an allegedly sick guard at the museum that night, which meant that this would be his first ever night shift? How did the thieves know the way to the basement without needing directions. Had the thieves cased out the museum beforehand? If so, how extensively? And if the thieves did research the museum beforehand, then why did they pick such an odd mix of pieces to steal? Why did the thieves wait 13 minutes before beginning their rampage through the museum after leaving the guards tied up in the basement? The thieves left artwork by Raphael, Botticelli, and Michelangelo undisturbed. They never went to the third floor where Titian's Rape of Europa hung, a painting that is said to be the most valuable in the entire city. So the question is, why did they steal what they did? The violent way the thieves removed the paintings from their stretchers and frames has since suggested to investigators that they were amateurs. So why exactly were they stealing from the museum? Did they even know what it was that they were stealing in terms of value? Were the thieves hired by someone else to steal the art? If so, who hired them and why? Were they hired by someone outside of the museum or someone from the inside? If the theft was an inside job, who orchestrated it? And for what purpose, since none of the artwork was actually insured against theft? When the thieves left Palace Road after 2.45 a.m., where did they go? And where has the art gone? Hopefully those questions tied you over until we discuss the second half of our story behind the lost art and the heist of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum next week. Anyone with information about the stolen artworks or the investigation should contact the Gardner Museum directly, either by calling 617-278-5114 or by emailing theft at gardnermuseum.org. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question loaded story to tell you all. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcasts. If you're interested in joining the Daw Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkasshellpodcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest. If you're not sure what level you'd like to start at, well, there's a not-so-new-anymore Patreon level, and it only costs $1. You can support Daw and the work that I do here for just a dollar a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode, as well as have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, that's all one word. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasshellpodcast at gmail.com. Or 
head over to darkasthellpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. And I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again.